Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Back in 1991, after I interviewed Dina Rosenberg, author of Fascinating Rhythm, a book about Ira Gershwin's lyrics, and Michael Strunsky, trustee for the Ira and Lenore Gershwin Trusts, I embarked on a radio documentary on the life and work of George and Ira Gershwin. For a variety of reasons, the documentary never came into existence, but I did record several interviews along the way. When my life took a different direction, these recordings went into a box where they have sat, undigitized and unheard, for nearly a quarter century. A chance meeting with Michael Strunsky in late 2015 convinced me it was finally time to get off my ass and digitize, edit, and air these recordings. All these recordings will eventually find their way to the George and Ira Gershwin collection in the Library of Congress. The first one I've unearthed is probably the most intriguing. English Strunsky, Michael Strunsky's father, was Ira Gershwin's brother-in-law and was close to both George and Ira and the Gershwin family. And when I interviewed him on August 25, 1992, he was, at the age of 83, one of the last surviving people who personally knew and spent time with George. George Gershwin died in 1937. Ira lived until 1983, and his wife, Lenore, English's sister, died in 1991. English himself would go on to live another 11 years. Sitting in on the interview, though not heard on the recording, was English Strunsky's wife, Lucy. A couple of points. First, the photo that English talks about in the middle of the interview can be found on the kpfa.org Radio Walensky webpage for this recording. Second, George Gershwin got his start at the age of 15 as a song plugger at Remick Publishing on Tin Pan Alley in New York playing other people's songs on the piano to prospective sheet music sellers. Tin Pan Alley was called that because so many pianos were playing at the same time that it sounded on the street as if there were a slew of tin pans banging at the same time. While George was at Remick, he met a lyricist named Herman Paley and became good friends with Herman's brother Lou, a schoolteacher. In 1920, Lou married Emily Strunsky, and six years later, Ira Gershwin married Emily's sister Lenore, whom he'd met at the wedding. The Paleys were an extended family, and the Gershwins and Strunskys were soon part of the mix. And that's where William English Strunsky comes in. I met George when I was about 13, which means he was 23, because we shared the same birthday, September 26, but he was 10 years older than I. Do you remember the instance of your meeting, George? I remember that I met him at my family's home, and I remember, don't know if it was the first time we met, but it couldn't have been more than the second or third time. We were sitting around, and the police came to the door because some kids were trying to steal the spare tire off his car, which was parked in front of the house. We lived at 19 West 8th Street at the time. 
Then we moved across the street to 16 and 18 West 8th Street. And I suppose you have been told or know something about the famous Saturday nights of my other sister, Emily Paley. So you're talking about 1921. Yes, just about 1921, six months one way or the other. At that point, Ira Gershwin was still writing under the name of Arthur Francis, correct? I don't remember Ira quite as early as that. I remember George first. As a matter of fact, I believe that we met George before we met Ira. And I remember Lawrence Stewart and Ed Jablonski's book, The Gershwin Years. In there somewhere, they speak of when Emily and Lou met Ira, which I think was somewhat after they met George. The Paleys had this weekly event, and George went regularly. You eventually, because of your relationship, got to know the whole family, mom and dad and sisters, all of them. Yes. Around the time you met George, if you remember... He was on his way up, but he was not a what we'd call a superstar today. No, anything but. As a matter of fact, the way that Emily and Lou met George was as follows. Lou Paley, my sister Emily's husband, had a brother who was a composer and who worked for Remix. And one day he said, there's a young man who's working for Remix that I would like you to meet because I think he's simply wonderful. So he brought George down. And that is how we met George and later Ira. Do you have any recollection of first hearing George play piano? No, I, I don't have an outstanding recollection about the first time I heard him play. He played so much at the famous Saturday nights, which were a few years later than we're talking about, a few years after 1921. Yes. It was still in the early 20s because he would so often come to those Saturday nights, and if he walked over to the piano and sat down, that was it. For the rest of the evening, everybody uh, was completely amused, and, and George loved to play the songs he had just written, the songs that were going to be in the next show that was going to open three or four or five months from now. There was one or several outstanding times that, that I think I'm the only one uh, that can mention this to you. Lucy and I were at George's one afternoon when he lived on, no, I think uh, I think was, this was 72nd Street. And uh, Oscar Levant was there, and the two of them sat down, and the two of them played the Rhapsody in Blue on two pianos, the like of which you have never, never heard. Lucy still talks about it. And uh, somebody said, well, why didn't you record it? on a tape recorder. And I had to think for a while and say, number one, I didn't have a tape recorder with me, and number two, they hadn't been invented yet. This was in the 20s, and, and, uh, or maybe very early 30s. The other time, George was coming back from uh, Europe, probably France, and you know, in those days, you probably don't know, where it took a five, six days to go to Europe. When people went to Europe, everybody came down to uh, a bon voyage party, and when somebody came back from Europe, everybody went down to the pier to meet him. And we were at the pier to meeting him, and he said, I want you to all, all of you to listen to what I have just written. Come on up to the house. So we went up to 103rd Street, and on 103rd Street, each one had their own apartments, and we went up to George's apartment, and he took me into the next room and said, Ingi, I want you to do something for me. That was my nickname at the time. 
And he gave me a board about two feet square on which there were three automobile horns. These were the old, old horns with a big black rubber uh, bulb that you squeeze and went, huh? And he said, you watch me as I play. And when I lean down to the left, squeeze the top one three times. And when I nod straight down, squeeze the middle one three times. When I nod to the right, squeeze the bottom one three times. Well, of course, he had just come back. He had just written An American in Paris. And this, he was playing it for family and friends. And this was the first time, of course, that it, anybody had heard it. You ever feel you got jaded from listening to him? I mean, you get used to it? No, you don't get used to it any more than any more than you get used to listening to great music. You don't get jaded by listening to Mozart. How could you get jaded by listening to all these new songs that you had never heard before and that are still to this day that that are still so I, I have had to make excuses to a lot of people. I don't understand some of today's music because I was spoiled. Today, it doesn't seem to me that there are melodies that anybody writes, whereas then all the melodies uh, are right there. By <laughs> If you don't know them, go and see Crazy For You, you know, which uh, has so many Gershwin songs in it. It's all Gershwin. A couple of questions about life at the Gershwin home. I understand they played a lot of ping pong. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. There was a ping pong table, and we all played. It was in a sort of separate room as you went up the... In those days, that, that house had a stoop, and you went up a stoop to the entrance. Today, that stoop has been taken away. I've seen the house. But I remember the ping pong table was just to the left as you came in. It was always being used. The ping pong cave was being used, and down downstairs and was usually a pinochle game going on because Morris, George and Ira's father, was a great pinochle player, and his buddies were always playing pinochle. And if Rose was around, there was a poker game going on because Rose was their mother. And uh, so there were always things going around. A couple of questions that I understand are a little bit too difficult to answer based upon knowing people quite well, but if you could kind of summarize a little bit what George was really like as a person and what Ira was really like as a person. I know that's a kind of broad and difficult question. It's an impossible question. I'll give you the answer I gave a, a month or two ago at Dina's insisting that I reminisce somewhat before 300 people where I said, people have often asked me this question, which, of course, is impossible to answer. But fortunately, Dina Rosenberg has written a book. It's got 400 pages, and if you want to know what kind of people they were, you have to read the 400 pages. However, I did tell a couple of stories to try to indicate the difference between a George and Ira. One story was that George and Oscar Levant had to go to Chicago, and so they took a drawing room, and one didn't fly in those days, and they walked into the drawing room and George plumped himself right down in the lower berth and sort of indicated to Oscar that he could have the upper berth. And Oscar, being the kind of guy he was, said, hey, George, why should I take the upper berth? And George looked at him and said, Oscar, you have to recognize upper berth and lower berth. That's the difference between talent and genius. Now, George had no hesitation about recognizing the fact that he was a genius. Ira, on the other hand, if I can give you a story, 
in Beverly Hills one day, knowing that Ira loved good food, and I came out there and I said, Ira, I understand there's a new restaurant that opened here that is supposed to have wonderful food. Have you been there yet? He said, no, I haven't been there. I, I've tried a few times, but I can't get a reservation. So I walked into the next room and came back five minutes later and said, Ira, we've got a table for eight at 7.30 tonight. He said, we have. How the hell did you ever get it? I said, it was very simple, Ira. I just used your name. Because he would never think of using his name. Well, that's the difference if you can go by just a couple of unimportant stories between George knowing he was a genius and Ira being too shy to even use his name to get a restaurant reservation. George at a party. I know you saw him at parties frequently. If you came to a party and George was there, what would he usually be doing? He'd usually be playing the piano because George was seldom anywhere where he didn't play the piano. Howard Dietz, that name means something to you? Sure. Howard and his first wife, Betty, lived in 18, just under Emily and Lou. And Howard, in his book, tells a story about how one night they were about to go to the theater and the banging upstairs in the chandelier was shaking and he was sore as hell. He said, God damn it, I'm going to go up there and tell him to stop this. So he went upstairs and somebody opened the door and said, shh, George is playing. And Betty waited and waited and waited and Howard didn't come back. So finally she went upstairs and rang the bell and Howard came, opened the door and said, shush, George is playing. They never got to the theater that night. Now this is the story that Howard tells himself. I'm just repeating what I've read. Did George ever talk about conflicts between writing popular songs and writing serious music? Not to me. I was never in on any discussion or, or anything that he had said about that. You have to remember that at the time I was 10 years younger, part of the time I was a teenager, and as uh, years went on, I was away at college and saw him not uh, as frequently as I did at the beginning. 1924 was the first big hit by George and Ira, Lady Be Good. Lady Good yeah. Do you have any recollections of that show, anything about that show at all, the creation or the show itself? No, I don't know anything about the creation. All I know is that, you know, and, uh, that George used to play music before the shows opened. I remembered that it was Fred and Adele Astaire. I remember a couple of the songs. I remember there was one thing called The Babbitt and the Bromide. But, you know, that's, that's going back for how many years? 60-odd? <laughs> that's a long time. That's as much as I can remember about it. George used to go up to Harlem uh, to listen to music. Did you ever go with him? No, I don't think I ever went with him. I went to the same places that he went to, you know. In those days, at 2 in the morning, you went to the Cotton Club. I don't recall that I was with him in Harlem. What was it like going to the Cotton Club at that time? It was a situation that is very hard for someone who hasn't been there to recognize that today because today, you know, you don't go to Harlem at 10 o'clock in the morning. It was uh, set up for the people from downtown and for white people particularly. They put on this show. It was a wonderful cabaret. It was a wonderful nightclub. Great music, great chorus, and what they did. It was very, very good theater. Over the course of the next few years, there were a number of shows, one of which was OK. Did you ever get to meet Gertrude Lawrence? 
I think I met Gertrude Lawrence uh, just to say hello. Probably one evening or at a party, I, I, I was introduced to her, but I didn't get to know her. And I remember that was what? That was about 1927, with a great someone to watch over me, wasn't it? Yeah. Do you recall around the time George became very famous, what would have been the incident that might have brought it to your attention that he was famous, that he had become very famous and very recognized? No, I think it would be little by little by little. I must admit that the Rhapsody in Blue, which was what, about 1924, that opened another whole area besides musical comedy. It's hard for me to remember now to answer your question. There was not one thing because it happened gradually. <laughs> and again, I wasn't so impressed that George was famous. George was a guy I knew. He put... he put his pants on one leg at a time, you know, it was no different. George was the kind of guy who could never be alone. There were times when he'd have to go somewhere, he'd have to go down to his publisher. He said, Inge, come on down with me. And here I was, maybe a teenager. I couldn't have been fantastically interesting to him, but he had to have somebody with him. So I was as good as anyone else. And then they took a house up at Ossining, New York, in the spring of 1927. And... Um, I went up there supposedly for three days and stayed a month. <laughs> Lee asked me to come up to teach her how to drive a car again. I stayed on and off for a month, and George and I very often would drive into New York and drive back. So I spent time with him that way. Do you recall any time where, where uh, George would say to you, Ingi, come on over here, I have something on the piano I want you to hear? No, I don't think so. I do remember, for instance, his being at Emily and Lou's and saying to Lou, Lou, give me some manuscript paper, because he had just played something that he wanted to write down. And so Lou always had manuscript paper around, and George would write it down. On the other hand, I can't say I was with him when he composed something. You know, this was, this, it was that kind of thing. Now, I do remember, because I used to start working about 11 o'clock at night, I do remember when I was up at Ossining, hearing the working on the first version of Strike Up the Band, the 1927 version. I remember that because I remember, and to this day, the song Soon, that tune was originally the finale of the first act. Are you familiar with that? And whenever I hear that, I still think of the words, which I still know, that were uh, originally written to that tune. Jim, how could you do such a thing? Oh, Jim, how could you do such a thing? My father and I both agree that he never used grade B. So many people today don't know what grade B is, that there was a grade B. Last week in Los Angeles, they were doing a recording of Fascinating Rhythm. And there were words that all the neighbors wanted to know why I'm always shaking just like a fliver. And I said to the people around so many, I, I made a survey. I said, do you know what a fliver is? And I think about 10%, one out of 10 people knew what a fliver was. Is that a Model T? Yeah. But uh, I'm bringing that up because people don't know what grade B milk was either. And still, the original story of Strike Up the Band was because the hero said that the heroine's father used grade B milk to make his Swiss cheese. Speaking of Strike Up the Band... Did they ever talk, did Ira or George ever talk about the failure to you, or did you ever overhear them talking about the failure of it? 
No, I don't recall that particularly. There were other shows that, uh, to use your words, that were failures too. And the very fact that Strike Up the Band had enough so that they redid it in 1930, you know, would indicate that, well, this was, this was what was done in the theater in those days and musical comedies in those days too. It didn't hit it every time. As I got older, oh, this was long after, after George died, many years later, I remember uh, investing money in one show that Ira did. <laughs> was the world's biggest flop, <laughs> The Firebrand of Florence. Yeah, with Kurt Weill. On the other hand, with Kurt Weill, I would love to see a revival of Lady in the Dark. That, to me, was a, was a great show. I'm one of the last of the people who knew them well is because I was so young. I was the youngest one. I don't know if you have seen that picture that's been used many, many times, a 1926 picture in front of my mother's hotel. Have you seen it? No, it's not in this book, but it's in many books. It's certainly in uh, The Gershwin Years. Get a copy of The Gershwin Years. I don't know where you're going to get it. Uh, <laughs> because that's, that's a story that tells about their life at the very beginning, all the way through, done by Lawrence Stewart and Ed Jablonski, and it's completely accurate. In any case, there was a, there's a picture there of maybe 25 or 30 people and some rather well-known at the time people from Michel Levitsky, who was a concert pianist, to a lot of composers, Arthur Caesar, Phil Sharig, as I remember them, Milton Ager, Sicilian Milton Ager, who incidentally were the parents of Shane Alexander, all kinds of people. And George arranged everybody and then put himself right down the bottom. There is, I think, only one other person besides me was still around, and that other person is a cousin of mine. I don't know, <laughs> last I heard of her was a year or two ago, she lived in Florida. But all I'm trying to indicate was that I was the youngest one of, of everybody, and that's why, although I may not have been as close as a, as a mature adult with George at the time, at least I still remember some. Did he ever sit down and say, Inge, let me give you some advice or play kind of a, a, an uncle no, sort of... No, no, that was not our relationship. Uh, there, was, there was no reason for that. I remember a couple of things. For instance, Lucy's father was president and chairman of the board of the Gillette Safety Razor Company, and Gillette was putting on an advertising campaign of all kinds of celebrities in different fields, and uh, the vice president in charge of advertising called me and said, hey, I understand you know George Gershwin. We'd like him to come up here and do that, do something. And the fee was so much, and I called George and told him about it, and he went up and did it. He, he said, Inge, I just want to be sure nobody else is getting more money than I'm getting. <laughs> I remember seeing that he was having trouble erasing music once he had written something down, and the Gillette put out a sort of very sharp little knife and I gave him one of them because he could take that and by rubbing it on the on the music it was like an eraser and so forth but I don't recall <laughs> we never had any serious serious discussions except about women what was his taste <laughs> it was very wide you heard them working on strike up the band part yes. one uh, do you recall any other time where you overheard them working at all? 
No, I really don't because I was not with them, you know. Uh, I, I recall, of course, that George was always playing the songs from the show that was going to open a couple of months from now. So that by the time we went to the opening, we, the, the music was, was old hat to us. Not old hat, but we were familiar with it. But I was not with them when they were, when they were working. The relationship between George and Ira, how did it work? Was George like saying, do this, or Ira, who was the one who would be initiating? Was it mutual? George, I think, initiated when they went to work. Ira was maybe procrastinated a little bit, as I, as I understand it. Ira liked to work very slowly, mulled over each, each word, as I understand it. But this is something that I think Dina can tell you more about than I can. But you didn't see any actual working between the two? No, except that one time up in Ossining in 27, when I listened to them working because it would keep me awake all night. They would start 10 or 11 o'clock at night when I was about to go to sleep, and I would just hear it all. Did you ever hear them argue? No. I don't think they argued. They... Maybe I got this from reading all kinds of things over the years. They each made suggestions. George made suggestions about various aspects of the lyrics, and I know that Ira made suggestions about what kind of a song, what the tempo should be. Sometimes they'd start a song with a particular tempo and then change it around. A fascinating rhythm was started completely different than it turned out to be finally. When they weren't working, was their relationship, would you say it was more compatible than most brothers, or did it have ups and downs that you saw? That I really couldn't tell. I know that, for instance, when they lived at 33 Riverside Drive, they had two penthouses and uh, with a common roof, roof. And so that we were either in Georgia's or in Ira's, and people went back and forth. It was uh, like having one apartment, but uh, uh, George, of course, always had stomach trouble. And uh, his diet was always uh, <laughs> stewed prunes and, and oatmeal, whereas in Ira's, Leonor had the most wonderful tables, and that's where I learned to eat Nova Scotia and some, some of the wonderful foods that she served. Uh, that, that was the, the only difference. But uh, we went back and forth. I certainly had no recognition, and there wasn't uh, of that kind of a relationship between the two. God knows for how many years did they write together? They went to Hollywood in 36. Well, first 31, but permanently in 36. I know that because Michael was two years old when we moved to New York. There's a story connected with that, so far as I'm personally concerned. I'll tell you the story because you don't use everything. Lucy and I I had a business in Farmingdale, New Jersey, and we wanted to move to New York, and we took an apartment. And Lee said to me, uh, do you have any furniture? I said, no, you have to go out and get everything. She said, well, don't buy anything until, let me see your apartment. So she came and looked at it. And the next time I went into it, it was completely furnished, right down to the pots and pans and books and silverware and furniture and absolutely everything. Because she said, we're moving to California, and I'm taking two or three of my big, very, very good pieces, but I'm not going to give the rest of it to the Salvation Army, which, of course, at that time, since I didn't have much money, it was a godsend. 
but that's how I remember. Michael was just short of two years old when we moved into it, so it was in 1936. Next May is our 60th anniversary. That's a long time. There were a number of other shows in there that, that weren't successful, that came and went. But in 1930 came Girl Crazy. Uh, were you in town for that? Did, yes. Okay, did you see it? I think the opening of Girl Crazy was uh, at the Ziegfeld Theater. And the reason I remember that, isn't that the one that, where Al Jolson stood up in the, in the pit and sang? Oh, yeah, it's Showgirl. Yeah. Showgirl. I'm sorry, I made a mistake yeah. there. Girl, Girl Crazy was the one with Ethel Merman and... Oh, I saw, hell, I saw that in, in Philadelphia. I saw the opening in Philadelphia. I remember I had a cousin who was going to Swarthmore. That was 1930, wasn't it? I was living in Baltimore. I'd graduated college in 30, and this must have been in the, in the fall of 30. And uh, I graduated college in 30, which would be in the sp spring, you know. And I remember I saw the opening of it. Oh, sure, that was, that was a great opening because I can't name it, but you go and read who was in the orchestra. And Ethel Merman was put on by a young man who was very, very sick. He played the piano. I say he was put on. I think he was her agent or was pushing her. That was a great opening. Do you remember uh, the audience reaction in Philadelphia? No. I can't say that I remember a particular audience reaction. The only audience re reaction I've, I've read about well, no, it was, it was a famous one that I think Dina has in her book, the opening of Lady in the Dark. Now, you never went with them to Europe, right? No. George frequently went over to, to England, though, right? I know George went to England. I don't know how frequently. I don't know how frequently he went to Europe in those days. You know, going to Europe in those days, it wasn't just uh, getting on an airplane and, and tomorrow morning or tonight you're there. Uh, or on the Concord, being there a couple of hours later. It was a big deal. It was five or six days. One didn't get around that easily. However, I know that George went a number of times. They went off to Hollywood and did the movie Delicious and then came back. Did either of them ever talk to you about that movie at all? No. In 1930, that must have been 1930, right? Because I was living in Baltimore. I remember Lee writing to me and said, we're living in the house that Greta Garbo lived in. I also remember that many, many, many years later, I said to Lawrence Stewart, who was then working for Ira, I have their 1930 Christmas card, George's. He said, you do, we've been hunting for it. Let me see it. I had saved the Christmas card and very, very fortunately, the envelope, too, and the envelope had a canceled date stamp absolutely perfectly readable. So I could see it was, you know, in December of 1930. Uh, it was George's Christmas card was a picture, uh, supposedly, of George done by John Houston in the style of Covarubius. Everybody thought it was a Covarubius, but John Houston did it. Well, how did that suddenly come up? <laughs> Except you were talking about 1930, and I remember this all happened in 1930. Did you see Delicious? I guess I saw it. I don't remember. Some movie that I saw 60 years ago? Well, how the hell? 1931, of the I Sing, the great political operetta wins the Pulitzer Prize. Yes. Do you have any recollections about the family, their reaction, George and Ira? 
creating anything. No, I don't have an outstanding reaction about it. There were some funny things about winning the Pulitzer Prize because, because George didn't win it. And Michael is still working on getting it posthumously. The one amusing part of it was that Mari Riskin, who was one of the authors and got the Pulitzer Prize, had been kicked out of Columbia. So he is kicked out of Columbia as a young man, <laughs> and he gets the Pulitzer from Columbia University. Just an amusing set of circumstances, that's all. Was, uh, I understand Ira was very angry that George didn't win the Pulitzer. Sure, he was angry about it. As a matter of fact, everybody was angry about it uh, because it, at that time they apparently said that it's uh, not for the music. And it seemed so silly because the music it, it made the show to such a great extent. As a matter of fact, it's being put on in Washington, isn't it? And I'm going down for the opening that's on the 24th. I think it is dated. I don't think that people will appreciate it now. But uh, personally, I wish a few more people knew who Alexander Throttlebottom was because it could be used these days. 1933, Let Him Eat Cake. Do you have any recollections about yes, that? I we went up to Boston to see the opening of Let Him Eat Cake because by that time... I think I had just been married or was about to be. In any case, I remember Lucy and I went up to Boston, and unfortunately, uh, as a sequel, it wasn't so hot. When you went to one of these Gershwin shows, an opening, what would be your feeling, if you can remember just generally, if you knew, did you have any, any idea whether a show was a hit or a flop just by seeing it? Yes. Yeah, you, you did finally, after opening night, you got a pretty good idea. I, I remember particularly after one show, and I don't know which one it was, but it was a flop. <laughs> I remember particularly going up to George's, and in the elevator, Arthur Gershwin <laughs> made some crack about, Jesus, this looks as if we're going to a funeral, because we were all so depressed because we recognized that the show was lousy, you see. So that you did get an idea, of course, you waited very anxiously for the reviews to come out, and someone would go out at 2 o'clock in the morning or something to try to get a paper. I think in those days they did not do what they do today, where, where the, today where the critics see it uh, before the opening, and so that uh, on the night of the opening the review comes out reasonably early. I don't think in those days, I don't think they did, so we had to wait till the wee hours of the morning to get the first editions of the papers. But you generally knew already pretty much what the reaction would be. Well, yeah, you did, but you, 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 I, can, I can only answer that by one thing. If people connected with the theater could see what their plays are all about before they open, there wouldn't be so many horrible flops, so that that is not so. People who were very close to it, or people who worked with it, you don't see it as clearly. Do you recall um, at any of those times if people would come over and say something like, well, the show, I don't know, we'll see what, we'll see what it is, but such and such a song was great or something? No, I don't think so. Uh, you're asking whether or not they made comments about it either before or right after it opened. I don't recall that particularly. Porgy and Bess, 1935, your recollections concerning it, concerning George fe George's fears about it, or what Ira might have said about it? Well, we saw the opening in Boston, I remember. I remember that because it was in the summertime, 
And I had a business at which I worked two months a year, August and September. And this was probably in September. Lucy would go up to Boston. Her father had a place just 25 miles outside of Boston, a place called Cohasset. And I would go up weekends. And I remember being in evening clothes to see the opening of Porgy and Bess. And I remember going from there to the station to take the train back to New York. I didn't know a great deal about it. I had heard a lot about it, but uh, I hadn't heard much of the music before it opened. There were so many things that were so new about, about Porgy and Bess. In the first place, it, it, it was an opera, but people didn't want to call it an opera. Uh, in the second place, it, Todd Duncan, he was a, he was, what was he? I've forgotten now, a music teacher who was reluctant to give up his job. He was scared to death that, uh, you know, this wasn't, uh, he, he was give, giving up security. Uh, this was something so completely new. And uh, it was about blacks in, in, in of a very limited culture. Not the usual sharecropper from Georgia or, or South Carolina or something. It was different. You know, there, there was so many different things about it, and then it was put on by the Theater Guild, which was very famous in those days. So I remember a lot of odds and ends about it, but uh, I wasn't in a position to a, be part of it or give, or give any outstanding criticism of it at the time. Do you recall at all your re response to it at the time? No, I very honestly don't. <laughs> I could make it up, but I don't, because uh, uh, I was so involved in my business at the time, which, as I say, I worked for two months a year in August and September, and I had to get back there because we worked practically 24 hours a day. I had a canning factory, and we canned tomato products. And so you did it while the tomatoes were ripe. I remember that opening. I remember the disappointment of it not lasting on Broadway longer than it did. Everybody was disappointed about that and disappointed about some of the reviews when it opened in New York. Do you remember specific responses by George or Ira? No, no I don't. 1936, they go off to Hollywood. But before they went, George had a radio show for a time. Oh yeah, sure, as a matter of fact. <laughs> George always had a stomach and he couldn't eat. There was one wonderful time he was in France. <laughs> he couldn't eat anything, even normal food. He would always have a problem with his stomach. He used to say he didn't know whether he was constipated because he had a, a bad stomach or if he had a bad stomach because he was constipated. And once in France, this is, this is just a story, he was in a restaurant and he was dying for some smoked salmon. And he knew the word poisson for fish and rouge for red, and he tried to explain, oh, they, yes, finally, they understood perfectly what he wanted. And they brought him a lobster, which, of course, he was the last thing in the world he could eat. That has nothing to do with your question. What was your question? Radio, <laughs> radio show. Oh, radio. Oh, yeah. So his radio show, I think, was Phenomen, wasn't it? It was a laxative of some kind, and he used to kid because so much that he was typecast because <laughs> here he had a horrible stomach and couldn't control it. And what did he have to do? He, he was advertising Phenomen at Lexington. I remember his radio show, but uh, 
wasn't too involved at the time. You were not in New York at the time. What year was this? Uh, yeah, I was in New York in 34. No, I may have been living in Farmingdale, but, you know, I came to New York frequently. As a matter of fact, the reason I moved back to New York is that I had this factory in a small town in New Jersey, about 50 miles out of New York, and I found myself going to New York a couple of days a week. I said, this is silly. I don't want to live out in this little hick town. I'd rather live in New York. I'll go to New York and come out to the factory a couple of days a week which was all that was needed in the wintertime. In the summertime, when the tomato season was on, I lived out there, of course. And at that time, Lucy went up to her father's place outside of Boston. When the Gershwins moved to um, Hollywood the last time, did you ever visit them there? No, not for many, many years. I, I didn't go out there for a long time. And finally, I went out. I remember, I remember going out when Ira was 61 years old. Now, that was, that was uh, uh, the reason I remember that is that Parker sent him a, their 61 pen. And that's how I, rem how I remember how old he was. They had just rebuilt their house. They had moved out of the house for six months, and they tore it down and rebuilt it. That's really all I remember about it, except I remember Ira... Ira, uh, you would keep me up all night because he was writing uh, lyrics on, on several occasions and he would read parts of it to me because with my memory from being very young, I knew lyrics, some of which almost he had almost forgotten. And uh, we used to talk and you know, then he'd go to bed at six or seven o'clock in the morning. So uh, I remember going out there and getting up at my normal time and, and going out and because nobody in that house got up before 11 and I saying, oh, in Beverly Hills they have sidewalks for the postman and for me. And that's all. Nobody else is out. So that uh, I did not visit them much after they moved out. Okay, 1936, 37, George's last year, they did the three movies. Uh, since, since you didn't go there, I'm sure you, you, know, you were in touch with the family, with Lee. Did she ever talk about their feelings in her letters? No, no. No, because it was mostly telephone calls. Lee was not a letter writer. What went on at that time, so far as George and his, as their work was concerned, I had, didn't, didn't have any contact with, really. George's death, can you tell about how you found out about it, what you knew? Did you, did you know he was sick? No, as a matter of fact, that weekend... We went to the theater in Cohasset. You know, there was a regional theater for the summer. And we saw a gal named Henrietta Malkiel, and who had just come back. And, of course, we said, how is everybody out there? Oh, George is fine. He's got a, he's ha in the midst of a nervous breakdown, but he'll be back at work on Monday. So this is what she said. I took the night train, as I always did from there, uh, on Sunday night got out of the train at Grand Central Station and a porter took my bag to take me to a taxi cab and on the way to the taxi cab I stopped at the newsstand and picked up a paper and there I saw that George had died and that's the first the first I knew of it and the way I found out about it which was a hell of a way I remember that so specifically that, that you know we were walking down to a taxi cab and I grabbed a newspaper of, at the stand. It must have been an absolute shock. He was a very, very young man. Of course. He was all of 38, and uh, I was 28. 
so that by this time, I, you know, I, I, I was an adult. It wasn't uh, like when I met him when I was 13. That was the 15 years I knew him. After George died, did you find out from Lee or from Ira, I mean, what was going on with Ira? I remember Ira saying, I've not, not only lost a brother, but I've lost a, what did he say, not a collaborator. He may not have used that word, but someone he worked with. He was saying to me what a fantastic tragedy it was, that it was worse than just losing a brother. Many people have lost a brother, but this was even more. He, after a time, got back into writing lyrics and worked with Kurt Weill on Lady in the Dark. And uh, You were there for opening night? Yes. Yeah, I was there for opening night of Lady in the Dark, I'm sure. Of course, I've since loved Lady in the Dark. I think it's a great play, and I wish to hell somebody would do it. So do a few other people, like Kitty Carlisle. She'd love to have it done. Everybody for their own reason. Me, only because I thought it was so wonderful at the time. Of course, I remember Gertrude Lawrence. You know, you can remember Gertrude Lawrence singing Someone to Watch Over Me and, and knowing how what a wonderful song it was if you remember her. So often, I have seen things done, and I say, I'm not in the theater, and I'm not a director, and I don't know anything about the theater. But look the way they're doing that. It stinks if they had only seen the original. And I saw the original. Why didn't they ask me? I could have told them. Not because I know how things are to be done, not because I'm a good director, but only because I remember how, let us say, a Gertrude Lawrence did this or a Fred Astaire did this, you know, and if they would only do it the same way, it would be great. But uh, that doesn't happen. Ira collaborated with Kurt Weill on a number of projects including the one you invested in. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be? I don't know how that came to be. As a matter of fact, I think in Dina Rosenberg's book, she might, I think, has indicated on that, how that came to be. I think Kurt died uh, when he was about 50 or something, so that that didn't last long. Now, you speak of Ira writing with Kurt. He wrote with six or eight people. You know that. Oh, okay. All right. He wrote with Burton Lane, Give a Girl a Yeah, yeah. He wrote with Jerome, Harold Allen, Jerome Kern, and, and a number of others. You said that when you went out to visit him, he was working on different songs. When I went out to visit Ira, yeah. when he was 61, yeah. he was working on his book, Lyrics on Several Occasions, because he would read me what he had written and we would talk about the old days and when it happened and so forth. Dina... And others have made mention of the fact that they feel that the song The Man That Got Away is related to George. What do you think? I don't know. I did not realize that all by myself. Having heard other people speak about it, I can only say, well, maybe. Just as Dina will go and analyze the lyrics in her book, Fascinating Rhythm, Every once in a while, Dina would invite me down to a seminar of her class where she was giving a lecture about the Gershwins. And once I went down and listened to it and listened to her whole explanation about the lyrics and how it referred to something else and what it did and why and so forth, <laughs> I, I popped up and said, I wonder if all that was really done or whether he just wrote the lyric as he felt it necessary at the time. And she said, well, maybe, but I think it was, had a relationship with others. So that it's very difficult. Uh, I would not uh, all by myself have come to the conclusion that he meant George in, in that lyric. Having 
heard other people talk about it and say so, I can only say maybe. Who the hell knows? Nobody really knows. People have come to that conclusion to a certain extent or say maybe, and I say maybe. I have no idea. Do you know anything about the creation of the movies Shocking Miss Pilgrim or Kiss Me Stupid? Well, <laughs> Shocking Miss Pilgrim, of course, was some of George's music that had not been used, had not been published, and as a matter of fact, I think needed some work, and that Kay Swift did some work on some of the songs. Kiss Me Stupid was such a bad movie that it was a shame <laughs> that I was connected with it. Have you seen it? It had something to do with, who was in it, Dean Martin? He sleeps with a gal and then leaves her a couple of hundred dollars and thinking that she's a hooker or something and she's not. I, I really have forgotten, but it's just a, a bad nothing movie. And I don't know why. <laughs> I think it's a pity that, that Ira even wrote lyrics for it, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's, a, it's not important. Why did Ira retire? I think he retired because he felt that he had, he had done everything he wanted to do. He had no incentive to do any more. He was that kind of a guy. It wasn't a question of any more money. He had all the money he could use. He had a reputation he couldn't improve upon. There was nothing more that he wanted. There were some people, that would, as you know, no matter how much money they have, they want to make more. Ira was not, <laughs> didn't feel that way. Financially, he had no problems. And uh, uh, so far as his reputation is concerned, he felt that he, it was not necessary that he do anything to make it better. And he was that kind of a guy. I think it, in, in Dina's book, uh, he quotes Ira as writing to somebody and saying, I like it out here. I go to the races. I play golf. I eat and get fat, which I love to do. Uh, words to that effect. Burton Lane had a comment that in the 50s or late 40s, he said jokingly in the interview I did with him, uh, something to the effect of, you know, you'd say to Ira, well, what do you, what do you have on tap? He's, in the coming year, he'd go, I have one musical I have to get out of. I have two plays. Yes. Well, that's because he had made up his mind pretty much that he didn't want to do anything else. He didn't want to do any more. For whatever reason, he just didn't feel it necessary. On the other hand, you'd take an Irving Berlin who did not want any of his music played. And I remember the last conversation I had with Ira. It was a telephone conversation. It was at the opening of My One and Only. I was at the opening of My One and Only, and instead of going to the usual parties, we went right home. And I said, hell... We got a cab very quickly, and it was only about 15 minutes since the last since the curtain came down. So I called him, and I said, told him how wonderful it was. And of course, his first question was, "Could you hear the lyrics?" <laughs> and I told him uh, that you could, and he was so delighted with that kind of thing. You see, Ira, in his last years, was only interested in Gershwin. I'll give you a story. Lucy and I were on the QE2 for three weeks. And we came in from Hong Kong. The boat landed in Los Angeles. So of course we went over to Lee and Ira's and thinking Ira was going to say, ask us all kinds of things about Hong Kong and the QE2 and all kinds of things. And the only thing he said was, how was the gambling in the casino on the QE2? 
Ira was, for the last years of his life, he was only interested in things Gershwin. This is why Michael Feinstein was so important. Michael Feinstein was hired at the age of 19, I think, to put the records in, or in catalog or put them in order. And it took him three years. And by this time, he would play and would tell Ira the new things that would, came out, and Ira would question him, and he, he would like, put a piano upstairs so he could play these things for Ira. And that's why Michael Feinstein, in some areas, knows more than anybody else about certain little things that Ira told him that Ira never told anybody else. All kinds of things. How a particular, or why a particular uh, song was written, and how, and some of the first verses to it, and how it was changed, and why it was changed, and so forth. Little things like that, you see. Michael Feinstein has a, an, an area of knowing certain things about that. In any case, Ira didn't want to do anything. I'm trying to think of the right word. He was, a, he was a legend in his time. That's what I was thinking of. He recognized he was a legend in his time. He didn't have to do anything to make himself a greater legend. And he didn't want to. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, obviously, if I've picked your brains uh, the right way. I, I don't know what I've missed. You know, I was with them, and I knew them, but Hell's Bells, I wasn't with them when they were working. I didn't live with them. They didn't discuss with me some of the questions that, that you asked. I can tell you that Ira never liked to move. When he played golf, <laughs> when he had to go from Belmont, New Jersey, to, to back to New York, He'd say to somebody, I hate to take the train. I'll pay you if you'll drive me. You know, these, these are my friends, you know. <laughs> if he paid them 25 bucks, that was, you know, that, that, that was a month's salary for them. Ira used to say when he, had, when he was constipated, <laughs> the way he got over his constipation is to keep eating. But if he ate enough, he'd force it out. <laughs> Or I would, would get up and at my mother's hotel and breakfast was over. He'd go across the street to the drugstore and have two ice cream sodas for breakfast. Little things that are, these are little things that I remember that don't make any sense, oh, you know. This, this, yeah, but this, this isn't the, the story of Ira, the kind of guy he was, really. I think that to answer your question, why didn't he do any more work? He didn't want to. He worked and this is this I have to tell you about my sister. These last years, he wanted to see to it that Gershwin lasted more and more and more and forever. And Leonor, in the eight years that she lived after Ira, did the same thing. This is the reason for Roxbury recordings, the reason for all the money that's going to the Library of Congress, the concerts that were given at the library, and will be and all kinds of things and frankly Michael is carrying on exactly what she was doing. She used to say to us when I die and go to heaven and I meet George and Ira I want to be in a position of saying I did the best I could. <laughs> may seem a little silly for a woman to say when I die and go to heaven you know. <laughs> Nevertheless this was her attitude is what I'm saying to you that she wanted to do everything she could. And here it is. I'll tell you how I ended my talk that I had to give a couple of months ago for Dina. And I, I didn't know how to end it. 
you know, I was telling some of these stories that I've just told you about the American in Paris and uh, George and Ira and Ira's reservations and George's being a genius. And I said, well, how do I end this goddamn thing? And then that, that morning, <laughs> I got what I thought was a good idea. This was on a Thursday, and the show had won the Tony on the previous Sunday. And so the way I ended was, I said, George died 55 years ago in 1937. Ira died about nine years ago in 1983. And four days ago, a Gershwin show won the Tony. Well, I'll tell you another story. Not that you can take these things for exactly as they are. I noticed there was a, there's a little church. We live on 40 West 67th Street. You know New York so well. There's a church on 68th or 69th Street between Columbus and Broadway. I noticed somewhere that they were playing some Gershwin, night of Gershwin things, a string quartet. I said, George never wrote a string quartet. What kind of shit is this? So Lucy and I had to go, you see. So we go to this little church and we're given a program and a letter from Ira that, you know, everybody got, saying that he had found this somewhere and so forth. And so I said, all right, so it's something I didn't know. You know, I don't know everything. So we sit down, there are no reserved seats, and then we look in the row in back of us, there's one seat that has a handwritten sign on it, reserved. And Lucy looked at me, and I looked at her and said, why should, any, why should there be one seat in the whole goddamn place that reserved? At the intermission, Lucy, in her big mouth, turns around and sees a man sitting in that seat and says to him, why is your seat reserved? Nobody else is it. He said, well, I'm the critic from the New York Times. I said, oh. So we got talking, and we told him our relationship, and we asked a question. He said, why is Gershwin still being played so much? And he said, well, one very good reason is your sister. She has pushed everything she possibly could. And I don't think that that has much validity, but it has some. It is being played because it's great music. But also, Lee did everything she could to push it, and uh, wherever she could. And she spent all kinds of money buying manuscripts and Library of Congress and uh, Roxbury recordings. So she did a whole lot, and Michael is continuing. What is your favorite Gershwin piece? What is your favorite Gershwin song? I think um, Someone to Watch Over Me would be my favorite song. And uh, I guess the Rhapsody in Blue, I, although there are parts of the concerto that I think are absolutely wonderful. Well, I'll tell you another story. I think uh, Dina has it in her book, you know, how that uh, Tomatoes and Tomatoes, how that came about. As I mentioned to you a little while ago that I had a canning factory that you worked for two months a year, August and September, when the tomatoes were ripe. And once I was, right after I bought it, I was visiting Lee and Ira, and, and Ira, who was always interested in what other people were doing and why, and he said, Inge, uh, where do you get your tomatoes? And I said, oh, in the month of March, I go to the local farmers and I sign contracts that if they'll plant 10 acres of tomatoes, I'll take 100 tons when they're ripe. And he said, listen, why do you say tomatoes? You used to say tomatoes. I said, Ira, look, if I said tomatoes to my farmers, they wouldn't know what I was talking about. I have to say tomatoes. He said, ah, you're just like your sister. I say either, but she has to say either. Well, six months later, I, <laughs> I heard a song that used both of those things.
that was the inspiration in which he got the idea, that's all. At least I feel I was responsible for the idea. What can you say? Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> exactly. After the interview ended, I continued talking with the Strunskys for a bit. Lucy told me that not long before, they'd been interviewed by Joan Pizer, who'd written a rather nasty biography of Leonard Bernstein. Pizer was intent on proving that George Gershwin was gay, though the only evidence to suggest that is that he was never married. According to English, though, off the record, George couldn't have been gay because he was too busy betting every single chorus girl up and down Broadway. In any event, Pizer was unable to find anything and wound up writing a biography that criticized Gershwin for being a ladies' man. Dina Rosenberg's excellent book, Fascinating Rhythm, is currently out of print, but obviously there are several biographies of George and Ira Gershwin that you can still find. You can get more information through an internet search, and of course, there's Wikipedia. Reconstructions of Gershwin shows are available via CD or digitally, as are recordings of George himself, both via piano roll and his radio show. An American in Paris, currently on Broadway, closes on October 2, 2016, after over 600 performances. The Gershwins are still in business. You can contact the various Gershwin Trusts by going to gershwin.com. Stay tuned for the next interview in the Gershwin Project series. Special thanks to Michael Strunsky, Dina Rosenberg, and my old friend Alex Davis, who all started the whole thing back in 1991. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.